This is SciBite, episode 127, for April 22nd, 2014. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at marijuana's effects on the brain, an Earth-like exoplanet, the brain's destruction controls, a possible new moon for Saturn, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back in a history and up in the sky this week. Very nice, Heather. Sounds like maybe we have some hazy topics, so why don't we jump into the news? Okay, Heather, where are we going to kick it off tonight? Alrighty. Young adults who use marijuana, even only recreationally, occasionally, shows significant abnormalities in two key regions of the brain that control emotion and motivation. So this is the first study to show that even just casual use is related to major brain changes. And what they did was they did uh, some neuroimaging, examined the brain of young adults, 18 to 25. In this specific case, they went to uh, Boston area colleges, took 20 students who smoked marijuana, 20 who didn't. Um, Nine males, 11 females. And so they went through, you know, interviews before and after to make sure they weren't dependent upon it, you know, so they can actually get some specific ranges of what they were looking for. And they actually show that the brain structures themselves actually show that the brains were adapting to low-level exposures to marijuana. Hmm. Now, it was directly related to how many, you know, joints a person smoked a week. So... The more, obviously, the more amorality and the shape, the volume, the density in these specific brain regions. Yeah. Now, some of them um, only used it once or twice a week, thinking, eh, that shouldn't be a problem. But it actually says that it's causing problems, changes in the brain even then. What they did is they, um, they examined specific regions in the brain and certain um, brain cell types to look where there was emotion and motivation and between casual users and non-users. And they measured volume, shape, and density of the gray matter to kind of get an idea of how different each region was affected. Hmm. And there were two related major things that happened. It was, you know, it was shown that the emotional and the those motivational centers were changed. And it sort of fits with some animal studies that have shown that rats were given um, THCs. Their brains completely rewire from new connections. That it's sort of, it's like when the people are kind of, essentially the brain is trying to almost fix itself. It's almost becoming addicted right away in a way. But the brain is changing. Now in uh, animals, this means that brain's clicking for rewards and stimulation sort of starts tweaking themselves. So it shows that those because of those changes, it actually makes the brain not respond to other happy things, hmm. essentially. It means that 
it's want it's giving pressure preferential treatment to marijuana to kick in the brain's um, reward centers and things like that. Now, it's important to know this is for young adults and it even is for casual use. Um, yes, uh, uh, the chat room asks if they had a proper control to make sure that there wasn't alcohol users and things like that. That was definitely part of the... Um, the psychological studies beforehand, the, to the best of their knowledge, they could control. Yeah, it was to make sure that that was going to be the major differentiation between the control group and the testing group. Now, in addition, it's kind of interesting to note that you know you say, well, you know, people have been using this for years and years and years, you know, during the quote hippie days, but during the sixties and seventies, the THC content of marijuana was only one to three percent. And nowadays, it's actually can go to five to nine percent. So it's actually much higher than it was currently than it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So it has gotten stronger. So it's not like you can just specifically say, looking at, you know, people who used in even casually in the 60s or 70s, say, well, you know, what about, you know, now? It's mm -hmm. that in itself is changing, the concentration is changing. But it's even though some states, you know, have it legalized and controlled, it is important to know that even, you know, using it a little bit, it starts to kind of rewire your brain. Yeah, the brain is an adaptable. I mean, that's it's so it's so it's so interesting, like uh, how it, it, it will try to balance everything out. And sometimes it changes your structure a little bit to do that. Um, yeah. And uh this is coming now. These studies are coming at a time now where it's like, obviously, this is a trend that's going across the U.S. And I, I don't know about outside the U.S. I would like to see a study. It seems like now that it's it's legalized in Washington and uh, Colorado for recreational use. And of course, it's yep. like in like something like 18 states for medical or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it seems like when it's at that level of usage now, it might be worth doing more than 40 people in the in the control group. I mean, I realize they got to start somewhere. Well, yeah. But in uh, these type of studies, you do you start. You have a small, you know, group of group of researchers who say, "Hey, we're going to do this size of analysis group because that's the what we have the money for." Mm -hmm. And now they prove that, and they come out with it, and then somebody can pick it up and say, "Hey, here's some more dollar bills. <laughs> yeah. Do a larger study." Yeah. Or somebody else comes along and right. says, "I will do a larger study. Work with us." Right. Your interest, your results intrigue me. Let's fund more. Yes. Yeah, that kind of thing. That makes sense. What a good Heather. Any other thoughts on that story? No, we'll just see what uh, where that goes with it. All right, very good. Well, uh, I'll just take a little minute here just to say, man, what a heck of a weekend we have coming up over at Jupiter Broadcasting. Uh, we'll be live Saturday and Sunday from Linux Fest Northwest, assuming I'm over the plague. And we got Alan flying in tomorrow to uh, join us, and we've got a whole crew coming up to join us at uh, Linux Fest Northwest. And even if you can't physically be here with us, we're going to try having the chat room going all weekend. We're going to have the live stream up all weekend. So just as you're doing your stuff, put us up on your Roku or... Put us up on your XBMC or your computer or your tablet or your phone and just watch what we're doing because it should be a lot of fun. Uh, so just go to jblive.tv. Um, I would suspect you'll probably start to see something on our stream around 10.30, 10, 10 o'clock to between 10 and 11 a.m. Pacific time on Saturday. And uh, we would love to have you join us because we're going to be uh, chatting with guests who stop by our booth 
And there's no reason we couldn't take a great question from the chat room. In fact, I would like to. So even if you can't physically be there, maybe we can still get some questions answered from some experts in the Linux field. So uh, join us this weekend over at uh, jblive.tv. And uh, if you're watching this after the fact, we'll if you know after this weekend, we'll have a uh, a summary episode of the Linux Action Show that kind of covers some of the highlights. So even if you can't catch all of our Linux Fest coverage as it's happening, hopefully the real goodies will show up in an edited down version of the Linux Action Show that comes out this Sunday. All right, Heather. Well, with that done, let's head off to the News Bite. All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the News Bite today? The first Earth-sized exoplanet is orbiting within the habitable zone of another star has been confirmed, confirmed. by the Tick Observatory and the Gemini Observatory. A what? So the Keck and the Gemini oh. Observatories. Okay. So this is another one of those Kepler Space Telescope planets. So it was identified sort of possibly, and then now they've actually confirmed it with some Earth-based telescopes. And in this case, it is a dwarf star about 500 light years away from us. So close in the neighborhood astronomical terms. Um, and it's... Uh, the constellation Cygnus. It's very dim star. It's about half a million times fainter than the faintest stars we can actually see. Wow. Um, it's very cool star. So the habitable zone is obviously going to be very different size and shape mm. than for our sun because yeah. you need that the distance for liquid water is going to be very different. Yeah. That has five planets, four of which are very close in, very hot orbits. And this Earth's planet is. In the temperate zone, which means that water could actually exist there. Now, no telescope can actually directly spot an exoplanet of this size and how close to the star it is. Essentially, what they do is they take all the data and they eliminate everything else that could be. Hmm. Like, all right, well, we see that there is some dimming of the star, which we saw with Keck. They can go through and take... Um, all the data they have and say, no, it's, they can get down to a specific uh, range and say, we don't see any larger planets outside of this range. So they can say, all right, well, it's not that. And so we can kind of start determining in this bubble around the star that we can't specifically see with straight observation. So what they're able to do is take what they call speckle data. <laughs> and it's image that go at about 400 million uh, miles, about four times distance between the Earth and the Sun. And they can say, okay, there's no other size of objects within the radius of the star there. Mm. And so then they take a whole bunch of short exposures, uh, images, and combine all of them together. And that kind of helps reduce the noise mm -hmm. from atmospheric turbulence. Oh, that makes sense. That's one of, the, one of the major things between, you know, what makes space telescope, you know, so much nicer because you don't have to correct or deal with any atmospheric turbulence. Right, right. Yeah, Absolutely. Which is also why those telescopes like to be on very tall mountains, because that's that much less atmosphere you're looking through. So they basically get multiple exposures or, or, or captures of it and then mm -hmm. lay it down over each other and then sort of yeah. pull out different bits that each capture gets. And then at, in the end, they have something that's of decent resolution. Yeah. So like um, you're almost figure like, uh, see, driving down the road and you're trying to take uh, like a video of something in the distance. And obviously there's going to be some shaking. Yeah. But... What if you treated it as 
all the frames were second were separate photos. And right. now you take them all and you line them up. So you're doing your steady cam. So it's kind of lining them up in that way. So it's a whole bunch of different, very very brief images that you all stack on top of each other yeah. and line up with the stars, like you said. Yeah. So huh. it's interesting because this is one of the first, you know, they all say, hey, this is the first in this, and this is the first in that. And we get a lot of quote firsts. But this is of Earth size. So it's not, you know, a super Jupiter or a super Earth that it's many times larger than Earth. It is Earth sized and in the appropriate zone. So we'll. Oh, can't yet, cannot yet determine whether there is sure. you know, any sort of liquid there or yeah. anything in the atmosphere. But hopefully, since this is the, quote, relatively, as I air quotes, the, <laughs> Over the in, image of the mind, um, <laughs> as air, I'm air quoting around my microphone, so you can see that. So hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to kind of pick something else because it is air quotes close. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of exciting. That is to really see exciting. I feel as like, we step. I feel like it's been like a couple of years of like uh, just exoplanet after exoplanet, discovery yeah. after discovery. It's kind of exciting. We're, I guess, it's sort of a new generation of of space discovery in a sense. We're just finding yeah. all well, these. Well, I mean, ideas. even you know, Kepler may not be having fresh observations anymore. Right. But there is so much back data. Right. That now we're starting to catch up and say, yeah. it's essentially like there's a whole list of possible things. You know, yeah. three over three thousand, and now the Ground-based telescopes can start going through that list and say, "All right, this one looks interesting. Let's go and actually look at that one." That's really get cool. better data on this specific star and these specific planets. Very good, very good. All right, Heather, we'll watch out because uh, it's time for the two-byte news. Hey! Okay, Heather, what's up first in the two-byte news? All right, the brain's distraction control. What was that? Ooh, squirrel. Do we have that? <laughs> I don't think I have so, that. <laughs> I don't know. So there is a new study that reveals that our brains rely on an active suppression mechanism to avoid being distracted. Oh, no kidding. By relevant information. Okay. So it's not just that your brain can identify anything that you don't need to focus on. It is specifically also that your brain has another system that goes shush other stuff we're not interested in you right now so this sort of opens up a whole new ability to say look at specific brain activities say is it something in the environment or the genetic factors is there some way that we can help with that there are a lot of people with adhd there are a lot of people who check down a list and go wow that's all the things for adhd yep 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 hmm yeah yeah, yeah. that's me <laughs> I don't know who that could be. There wouldn't definitely be Martians like that. <laughs> but so it's, it's, like a, it's like a break? Like your brain has like an attention break and say, no, no, slow down, focus. And that break can be dis, uh, broken, like defective? Kind of, yes. So they're thinking that maybe if they can discover that, help decide, hey, what parts of your brain help hit the break on that, to say, ah. suppress those the squirrel tendencies the squirrel tendencies there we go maybe could help with people with adhd some serious cases where it is very significantly harming for actual daily life even schizophrenia things like that it's any sort of those attention deficit 
um, disorders that say, hey, can the brain help deal with distraction, help keep, suppress those distracting objects? Well, uh, I, 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 I've been told I suffer from ADHD. I see no evidence of that, Heather. I see no evidence of that at all. No. Um, well, in some cases, it can actually work to your benefit if, you know, your job is very here or there and you can't. True, true. Being super focused will actually hurt you. That's true. If you do a lot of different things, then you, you're very happy. If I didn't have ADHD, about. if I didn't have ADHD, then how would I be able to operate the soundboard and talk at the same time? Exactly. <laughs> but yes, uh, anonymous uh, Asperger's. There are some, well, I thought about that too, where it's um, autism spectrum uh, from Asperger's to any type of the various degrees of aut- autism. There are yeah. some people that think is because it's too much coming in. You can't differentiate what needs to be important and what is not, but um, what could be suppressed. And yes, uh, Eric, it's not necessarily specifically that, um, and it it is separate things, but any some in that range, there are some people who believe there is something to do with that. Yeah, fascinating. It's always interesting to find out a little bit more on how the brain works, and it always makes me think of the fact that we're just kind of machines in some ways. Now we do have a little congratulations to uh, yes. Mama Saturn, don't we? We do. Saturn may be getting a new moon as we speak. That's a thing that happens? <laughs> yes. Well, the rings themselves, there's a bright clump that they see on the outermost edge of one of one of the A ring. And it could be uh, a moon in the process of being born. Wow. Now it's this large arc of icy material that they see that's kind of clumped. Now it could be that it's the result of some sort of gravitational perturbation caused by some object, possibly a moon that we can't see quite yet. Maybe a miniature moon sort of in the process of forming where all of this clump of stuff is going to come and coagulate more. Hmm. And a half mile wide object, kind of unofficially known as Peggy, (laughs) P-E-G-G-Y, as of right now. Okay. And there's thoughts that that's how many of the other Saturn's moons are have thought to have formed sure. back in history. Sure. So it's really exciting that we're actually being able to see this sort of as it goes on. Yeah. It's uh, not something that will probably finish up anytime soon, though, right? Probably going to take a while. No, it's going to be while. They first yeah. spotted this in 2012. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, uh, Heather, don't look now, but I do believe we have a spacecraft update. So unless something changes, I specifically in the new studio put the warp core destruction button away from the spacecraft update. Huh? Look at me thinking. Oh my ahead. goodness! I know. I'm gonna I have know. to thank whoever whoever <laughs> moved that button because I'm pretty sure you didn't move that button. <laughs> so what is I our spacecraft update? All right, SpaceX Dragon commercial freighter has arrived at the space station early Easter Sunday morning, April the twentieth. Mission was able to its third cargo delivery mission. Brought two and a half tons of science experiments. Uh, They'll have it there until the 18th of May. 150 science experiments, um, 5,000 pounds of science experiments, some Earth-observing images, uh, the legs for the Robonaut, some communications equipment, some gear, veggie lettuce, spare parts, crew provisions, all that kind of thing. (laughs) But included in this is, we were talking about this last week, the 
multiplexer, demultiplexer, the item on the space station that kind of went on the fritz. It controls the robotic mobile transporters, the radiators, um, solar rays. They have the repair stuff for that. They have a new spacesuit. They have the repairs for the other spacesuit. So now they'll be able to unload all that. Okay. Get that together and start making to going through and getting moving that uh, spacewalk forward. Cool. Now, is it? Uh, I, I've heard a little rumor floating around the internet that researchers have maybe gotten some possible models models of what the interior of Pluto could look like. Yes, New Horizons spacecraft is heading towards Pluto. Hopefully, it'll be there next year. Now, there are there was recently a paper published that said. They believe they have three interior models for huh. Pluto, what they okay. think is there. Okay. One is pretty much just a rough rice rock ice mixture. One is clearly clearly delineated rock, then ice. Yeah. Or like an ocean in there, possibly, where it's um because Pluto and Sharon, its moon, uh, co-planet, orbit each other so closely. There's some. The gravity on both of them sort of moving the crust on them uh-huh. a little bit. So that could actually create enough heat to possibly create a small... Water layer? Yeah, liquid layer. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of different... With this goes theories about how Pluto and Sharon were formed, you know, what their history were, is, was. Hmm. So when New Horizons gets there next year, they'll be able to see... um. The surface, which will give them an idea of some tectonic action, or their plate edges uh-huh. thrust into the, you know, into the air. So they'll get smooth. some close-up shots to have some, so better a better handle on some of these theories. Oh yeah, we've never we've never had any clear imaging of Pluto or Charon. Oh. Now with this, they'll be able to get close-up views, and they'll be able to have a much better idea of what exactly Pluto is, what it's made of, possibly how it was. Um, formed. The one drawback to all this is Pluto actually does have a bit of an atmosphere, hmm. but because of its orbit, the atmosphere sort of freezes to the surface for part of the year. Wow. For part of Pluto's year, which wow. is quite a while. Now, in this case, they're thinking the atmosphere is going to be kind of at the starting point of that. And because of that, it's going to kind of cover the surface of Pluto just a little bit. Mm. Make it in a such little a bit way harder. That Make it a little bit harder to kind of figure out what exactly yeah. is going on. Go figure. Go figure. But it'll but it still will give us much yeah. better, clearer idea of what's going on with Pluto. Sounds like better than what we got now. So that's Oh, really much better. All right, Heather, are you ready to head over to Mars and do a curiosity update? Let's go. Well, not that one. I said we're gonna go over to Mars and do a curiosity yeah. update. So, see, I move the button, Heather, and you see what happens. I and know. Lift off <laughs> of the Atlas V with lift curiosity. Off. All right, Heather, what is our favorite rover up to? All righty. Scientists are using and eyeing out some rock layers surrounding the base of this small butte nearby. They're calling Mount Remarkable (laughs) as a target for investigating. Uh, They have some, they've been using the orbiter to kind of peer down on where they are and using the uh, ground-based eyes. I love that. uh, Yep, to kind of get a better idea. Looks like there is a butte about 16 feet, 5 meters high, uh, close-ish by, that they're going to kind of start really looking at with uh, 
their imaging data and look at the use the laser to get some spectrographic analysis. Okay. And then from that, depending on what they see, they might drive up to it, get some more testing done on it, and then maybe even kind of put it to the next level. And this will be the third time possibly that Curiosity will start drilling into rocks. Ooh. Usually some good goodies come out when that happens. Yes. So we'll see. We're really starting to amp up into the time frame where it's going to be getting kind of exciting again. Yes. Very good. Very good. Well, I got the, I got some excitement for you. In the meantime, how about a time machine? Let's go. Woo-hoo! This is a quick one. I tell you, Heather, if all the trips were this smooth, I'd try and travel all the time. No big yeah. deal. All right, so this week, the time machine brings us to 24 years ago, April 25th, 1990. Heather, what happened this week in science? The Hubble Space Telescope was deployed in space by the Spatial Discovery. It was the first major observator- orbiting observatory named in honor of an American astronomer, Edwin Powell Hubble. Now, it was... Seven years behind schedule, oh. bit over budget, oh. but, and of course, many people of us remember the primary mirror was actually flawed. Yes. And so it had blurry images. Right. They had to go back and that was a big make, deal. Uh, yep. They had to go back and make contacts for it, bring it up on a separate <laughs> mission, Yeah. put some contacts on it, and then it saw very clearly again. But we are still using the Hubble Space Telescope. 24 years later, it is still pumping out those beautiful images. And I'm so happy that um, one of the last spatial missions was actually able to get up there and do mm-hmm. a little bit of work yes. on the Hubble Space Telescope before it was not being able to get to it anymore necessarily. So, Right, right yeah. Yeah, very good. Wow. So there you have it, 24 years ago. Wow, and I remember that. Uh, so that's okay. All right, no big deal. That's fine. I'm just yeah, gonna brush we're, that we're not looking at the how many years ago. We're just remembering that it happened. Yes. All right, Heather, let me recalibrate the Cybite 2000 so that way we can look up into the sky this week. All right. On April the 29th, there is a small population of the world who will actually be able to see an annual solar eclipse. Ooh. Now, this is going to be the first solar eclipse of the year for all of the Earth. Uh, this month is really rare as it is just because of the way the moon is laid out most of the shadow is actually kind of hovering above the earth (laughs) um but i mean of this type of specific eclipse between 2000 bce and 3080 so only like 1.7% are of this specific variety but so only some people in the Antarctic, uh, there are some several south southern Indian Ocean islands. All of Australia will be able to see part of it. Uh, some islands in the southern Indian Ocean will see about 55% of an eclipse sun. Okay. In Australia, Perth will be able to see about 55%. Sydney will be able to see about 50%. And it'll be low to the horizon in the west at sunset. If you're in any of those areas, don't forget to view your solar eclipse very safely links in the show notes on how to do so right and definitely tweet yes to us yes should you be able to see it please do that would be so cool we love for that. our small population yes. of the of the science hearing network yes we love seeing actually that be able to see it yeah and then you can share it with the rest of us yes mm-hmm. otherwise for the rest of us not so lucky peoples on friday april the 25th around dawn look for the thin crescent moon low in the east and it'll be to the left of the planet Venus. 
On the whole this week, Venus is our morning star. Look to the east to southeast as daylight reaches us. Mars is our other favorite planet. We were just passing opposition a few weeks ago, which meant that it was completely opposite of the sun. So we were able to see that. We could still see that most of the night. In the evening, it's in the southwest with Spica just below it. And they'll be at their highest point around midnight daylight savings time. And moving just towards the northeast as dawn approaches. That's always a good pair because Mars is orangish red and Spica is that. A uh, blue-white star. Yeah. We've got Jupiter Ding. at twilight. It's high in the southwest, sinking towards the western horizon as the night progresses. And Saturn with its possible new moon. At the end of twilight, you can see it high in the south around 2 a.m. That's actually and not that bad of a sky, really. I mean, yeah. we don't get any cool eclipses, but as, you know, no. you got the heavy hitters, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. I'll take that. Yep, we got a whole smattering of uh, our planets throughout the night. Yeah. And as always, Heather has all of those listed in the show notes. Just go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, look for SciBite 127, and everything that Heather talks about is listed out in the show notes in chronological order. So if you just scroll down to the bottom, guess what's down there up in the sky? So if you see something and you're like, what the heck was that? That's your quick check. You just go check that real quick. And you can also send that over to folks. Just copy and paste it and maybe send them a link to the SciBite program to help spread the word about the happy science. Well, Heather, I think that just about brings us to the end. Is there anything else we need to cover before we go? Not that I can think of. All right. Very good. Well, we'd love to hear from you. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and click on that contact link and choose SciBite from the drop down. Or you can tweet right at Heather. She's JB underscore Mars underscore base. And don't forget, we do the show live Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week.